Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the wonderful and weird parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, uh, as always, Gareth. And with me, uh, as always, as well, are my co-hosts, Aaron. Say hi. How you doing, everybody? Excited Good. to be here? Good. That's the enthusiasm we want. And, of course, we're also <laughs> by my other co-host, Drew. Woo! Good. <laughs> That's the level of enthusiasm we need. Uh, <laughs> anyway. I'm going to do my news article like that. Yeah. <laughs> super excited. Super animated. So uh, this week we've got everything from an iconic species of British tree uh, right the way through to some interesting <laughs> things that have been found in Barry in Wales. Um, right the way through to we're going to answer. What's Barry been up to? What's well, he been putting we'll, in himself? We'll find out what Barry's been up to. Um, <laughs> we've also decided to, uh, to have a deeper dive into our mailbag this week. And we're going to answer a big amount of some of the questions we've had. We've had quite a few come in. So we're going to uh, spend some time on some of our email questions. Let's jump into the news. Woo! <laughs> yeah! It's the news! Okay, so we're now into our news for this week. Uh, and this week I'm going to start us off with... What's been happening in Barry? That's in Barry, not Barry the person. I don't know anyone called Barry, um, but this is uh, Barry and District News, um, that you know massively multinational newspaper. Um, so Barry itself is a small area in uh, just outside of Cardiff. Um, if you go fossil hunting, uh, you'll know this area relatively well. But this is about a particular fossil that has been found by a four-year-old girl. She has found some of the most complete uh, theropod, you know, the three-toed uh, meat-eating dinosaur footprints ever. And in fact, these are some stunning footprints that she's found. The actual pictures that come along with it uh, show a sort of series of bits of trackway. And essentially, this little girl well, found these amazing footprints. And I'm not at all jealous of her finding dinosaur footprints like this. No, 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 of course not. <clears throat> I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Anyway, the footprints themselves are actually going to go on display at the National Museum of Wales uh, in Cardiff. Um, the exhibition is going to be titled Lily's Fossil Footprints. Uh, and it'll be on display in the National Museum in the main hall uh, from July the 21st. So basically these, these fossil footprints are, well, that good and certainly worth going to see. Uh, and then Museum of uh, Wales is also certainly very, very good. And if you get a chance, go and see it. It's a very, very good museum. It's certainly one of the best ones in the country. Uh, yes, but remember to stay safe. And I know you don't have to wear a mask. Please do if you're going into indoor spaces. Yeah, very true, Drew. We should certainly be uh, maintaining that, even though uh, things are back to normal, in inverted commas. Um, so, well, yeah, we should certainly be thinking of others when we go into any confined space you might be perfectly healthy but the person you walk past might not so yes. um when it comes to uh, this particular specimen it was taken from the beach now this particular area of wales has some fantastic fossil areas uh, along this part of around barry no, named uh, bendrick's beach 
um, but it's under private ownership and it's illegal to remove fossils from that site, basically without special permission. It would appear that they managed to get special permission from Natural Resources Wales to legally remove this particular fossil of the, the footprint to then move it to the, uh, the National Museum of Wales. Basically, it's, it's not just being taken up and sold. In fact, a couple of years back, there was someone who went down to the, uh, these fossil footprints in Wales and basically took a, uh, an angle grinder or a concrete cutting saw to these, these footprints, cut, uh, I think it was about half a dozen of them, off the rock and then stuck them on eBay. Now, oh. they tried to sell them. However, uh, that's obviously illegal. And as soon as it was found out, people were looking around. And it somewhat makes it very easy to track down who's done this if you've got an eBay account, because they just rocked up at the guy's house pretending to want to buy them and nicked it. So unfortunately, nice. those particular footprints are no longer on that bit of the beach, but they are, they are still protected. They're now in the National Museum of Wales. So uh, essentially, there is quite a few of these footprints in that collection unfortunately due to people's stupid wrongdoings but this has been done very much in the right way it wasn't a little girl with an angle grinder <laughs> well we don't know yeah, I mean, well we don't know would you let a four-year-old with an angle grinder you yeah know? fair enough um so uh yeah essentially this particular area as well is 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 uh, really important uh to helping build up a picture of what the uh, the area looked like from about 220 million years ago in this part of Wales. It's what uh, was basically happening in the Triassic period. Um, so dinosaurs are just starting to get their, their sort of real start. And some of the earliest dinosaur footprints have actually come from this particular part of Wales. So it's of real importance to the rest of the world's uh, paleontological mm. knowledge, basically, that we, that we have these. So it's, it's going to be a really important part and help build up that picture a little bit more. You can't obviously tell exactly what it is from a footprint, but you can certainly tell that it's a theropod dinosaur. That's the three toes uh, that you see on everything from a Compsognathus to a T-Rex to a pigeon. You know, it's that very classic theropod foot. So, uh, yeah, there was a, a quote from the, the Director of Collections and Resources at the National Museum of Wales. Uh, the display of this special footprint is the result of us working in partnership with the uh, British Institute for Geological Conservation, Archaeology Cymru, uh, and National Resources Wales to safely remove the fossil from Bendrix Bay to the National Museum of Cardiff. And we're look uh, looking forward to seeing visitors of all ages enjoy this exciting discovery and be inspired by Lily's story. Our dinosaur fossils and dinosaurs in the Evolution of Wales gallery provides popular uh, entertainment for visitors and I hope people will be taking this opportunity to learn more about dinosaurs and how life evolved in Wales. And I think that's true. The, probably the biggest thing to take away from this is you don't have to be someone with a paleontology degree who's been working, you know, in the field for years and years to find fossils. You can be a four year old kid who's walked onto a beach and basically picked up a world changing fossil about some of the most important fossils in the world have been found by people who didn't even realize what they had at the time. Um, so it's a, it's a really, it's a really good message for, for people I, to basically get out there and go fossil hunting. Really? You might I, find something. I can, uh, I can imagine that being some sort of one of those little pop-up ads. It goes like, <laughs> or 
little girl learns how to be paleontologist with angle grinder and paleontologists are furious. <laughs> you know those ones? Those old ones, yeah. But it's, it's also good This little well. girl went for a walk. What happens next will shock you. Yeah, yeah. Number five will shock you. <laughs> so God, number I hate five. those videos. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's also really important as well for... Well, uh, Aaron, I mean, you, you have a, a little girl. So uh, it's, it's also one of those things for trying to make sure that STEM subjects, the sciences, are basically, you know, enjoyed by girls and taken f- mm. further afield because there is there is very mm-hmm. much that sort of gender gap and just basically get people interested into it. You know, it's a really, really good story in that sense. But yeah, that's my... Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it is. That's my good news story, and uh, I'm not at all jealous. Not at all jealous. <laughs> Haven't been fossil hunting in almost two years. <laughs> anyway, Aaron, let's move on to your news. Jeff's crying. A little bit. <laughs> so- sobbing his heart out. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at one of my fossils on the shelf over there and weeping because I haven't gone fossil hunting in ages. Anyway. Weeping because it's because it's piss poor compared to what what Lily Lily dug up. It's, it's a large copper lot. I don't think that's a It's a large piece of it's shit. It's a large poo. It's a large, it yeah. Is. And you know what? I absolutely love copper lights. They're one of my favourite fossils to find. Wow. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll even put a picture up of me with that uh, that fossil. Just, just We could have gone somewhere very differently with that, with that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I'll put a picture of me up. Some of my own copper light. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to your news, Aaron. Pressure Let's... cooked for 48 hours <laughs> in a vertical way. Yesterday's macaroni cheese. This is disgusting. <laughs> Let's move on to your news, Aaron. Let's keep this going. Uh, and that's the way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> your your news isn't as uh, as pleasant as mine, I believe. I've got great news. Oh, good. <laughs> I got great news, and Gareth will love it because it's to do with poo. <laughs> I only like fossilised poo, I'd like to point out. If you leave it long enough. (laughs) 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 He's shaking his head at me. Right. Yeah, so this is the exciting news that a potentially untreatable superbug will be being passed between dogs and owners. Coming to that. (laughs) (laughs) It's what we needed, another pandemic. (laughs) Oh, we've got so many options for pandemics coming up. It's really an exciting time to be a virus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll try and keep the enthusiasm throughout this. So experts are warning of a nightmare scenario after discovering the antibiotic resistant gene can be transmitted to humans from their pets. Dun dun dun. Um, so basically, uh, dogs are infected in their owners with a superbug. And the reason why this works is because the gene MCR1 is harbored in the gut of the uh, of of our canid friends man's best friend uh, and it's transported via microscopic fecal particles that have not yet become coprolite and basically they make dog baskets a area of insanely high risk of in- infection researchers at the university of lisbon took fecal samples from 126 healthy people from a total of 80 households who between them lived with 102 cats and dogs. That is a lot. Mm. Over a period of two years up to February 2020. So it stopped at the uh, the start of last year, this study. 
Of all this, eight dogs and four people were found to be carrying MCR1. And in two of these households, the MCR gene was found in both the dog and the owner. These findings were presented to the European Congress for Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases uh, when they had an online conference a few, a few weeks ago. So the gene was first reported in China in 2015, and China made steps that we'll get onto in a minute uh, to basically um, try and minimize the risk here. But uh, it basically, the Medical Express uh, quotes, MCR1 confers resistance to colistin, an antibiotic of last resort used to treat infections from some bacteria resistant to all other antibiotics. So when all other antibiotics have failed your body in getting rid of a bacterial infection, colistin is one of those uh, kind of antibiotic nukes, which are the last resort to try and uh, wipe this, wipe the infection out. And unfortunately, MCR1, the gene, uh, basically carries a resistance to that antibiotic. Um, so this scenario, this this potential scenario, could basically result in MCR1 combining with already drug-resistant bacteria to create a truly untreatable infection. To be honest, researchers and scientists and such have been warning for years about the overuse of colistin, uh, particularly when we draw uh, animals, um, meat-producing animals like cows. The uh, the overuse of it risks the rise of mutant genes. No more mutants. <laughs> uh, I actually picked this article just for that one quote. Um, just, oh, there we go. Just, just as an excuse to get in. I didn't really. I, I did it because it was interesting. Um, it would basically render the drugs useless in humans. Uh, colistin, this, the, the quote goes on to continue... Colistin is used when all other antibiotics have failed. It is a crucial treatment of last resort. If bacteria resistant to all drugs acquire this resistance gene, they would become untreatable. And that's a scenario we must avoid at all costs, I would say. Um, we know that the overuse of antibiotics drives resistance, and it is vital that they are used responsibly, not just in medicine, but also in veterinary medicine and in farming. So this is a bit of a crisis that has been on the horizon for some time. Uh, we think where well, it's estimated that antimicrobial resistance kills around 700,000 people a year globally. Uh, and it's forecast to kill 10 million by the year 2050. So that'll be a great win for this, uh, this problem. <coughs> oh, God. <coughs> Rona, it's got him. Mm. Sorry about that. <clears throat> Right. Okay. Um, so, like I say, it's it's forecast to kill 10 million a year by the year 2050 if we don't get on top of this right now with with priority. The WHO, the not the band, the World Health Organization has described antibiotic resistance as one of the biggest threats to global health, food security, and development today. So, what are we doing about it at the moment? I believe I, I mentioned China. China prohibited the use of colistin in animal feed. Um, I can't remember the date and I can't find the date. Why can't I do that? The year. Sorry, but I know it's a couple years after they discovered it. They After they discovered it, which was 2015, as I mentioned just now, uh, they got to work pretty quickly to basically um, to prohibit its use. Uh, the EU is banning routine uh, preventative use of antibiotics in farm animals for the next uh, starting next year. 
which means that you, if you're in the EU, you'll no longer be able to just load your cattle with antibiotics in case they get an infection. It means that there has to be a reason uh, for the antibiotics to be used. Of course, we won't be enjoying that health benefit over here in Britain because somebody... We've got sovereignty. We've got, yeah, somebody thought we didn't have any sovereignty and so they decided to get sovereignty by basically putting us in a very weak <laughs> position but we've got um and fish but it's all right it's all right yeah so um so how does this pass to people so obviously uh, i'm going to come at this from a dog training kind of a- approach and a bit of behavior on dogs as pets most people will have a bed uh because that's all we really need is it like like you need one bed or bed in, in in maybe two beds, one in in one room, one in the other. But essentially, you usually have one bed that your dog goes on to have a nap or to chill out or whatever. As I say, this is a, a high contact zone, so it's a high, uh, especially with their with their butt, and so high chance of uh, of fecal particles coming to rest there, which means that it's there's a high chance of of uh, getting infected from there. So one way to combat this would be to keep them nice and clean, maybe have a couple that you can can rotate. So one goes down for a day or two, chuck it in the wash and put the other one down whilst that one's getting cleaned and dry. But one of the most important things, and this is something that some dog owners can't imagine life without doing this, but having your dog sleep with you on the bed, that has been named the most, the, 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 that's the highest uh, cause of infection is people who let their dogs sleep on their bed because they're on their bed, obviously grooming themselves, farting and, uh, and generally just rolling around on there. And these poo particles will come loose and they'll come to settle on your bed. Most people do like clean their bed sheets, what, once, maybe twice a week or something like that. And, so you're coming into you're sleeping in these in the very particles that are going to pass on this uh, this gene to you. Whilst dogs are uh, are kind of the main kind of talking point in this article because they're the ones that seem to have the link to this, it is probably worth keeping your cats off your bed as well because they have other other issues with their fecal uh, particles that will uh, which will also spread to you. But yeah, essentially that's my exciting story of the week uh that once we're done with with covid we may have a gene from the bum of our uh, of our best friends to uh to put us into another lockdown well interesting um right. <laughs> what i was actually going to bring up on that is it may seem like this sort of novel thing that uh, people are, are coming across nowadays it certainly is being accelerated nowadays believe it or not, close contact to other animals is actually responsible for the fact that we have certain genes in our body that allow us to be able to of do Of course, things, yeah. Which, that's the only small beneficial side of things like that. I think it was when we started domesticating pigs and poultry, which are two massive disease vectors. Mm-hmm. We probably had very similar things. People getting very sick and poultry and pigs getting very, very sick. Um, but I think we ended up with a certain gene from them which i think had had to be transferred via mosquitoes or something like that if i remember correctly yeah yeah uh, yeah it's always one of those things that you know diseases can pass between species especially when they're in close contact with each other it's why those wet markets were a very very bad idea because you could have species from all over a certain area being kept Mm -hmm. together in very close proximity 
mixing all sorts of different things. In very close contact to, in very close proximity to where you're buying some of your street food as well in some places. And you really do have to be careful when you go traveling about where you, where you get your street food from. Uh, That's quite true. Um, But it's actually a very timely comment that you had there, Gareth, because we're getting to a point where we haven't come across um, a lot of uh, viruses and bacteria we've not come across for thousands of years. And we're getting to this point now where we're starting to encroach so deeply into jungles and forests and stuff that we're coming across animals carrying these things. And that's how we're coming up against novel viruses and bacteria that our bodies are just not uh, adapted to uh, to defend against. So whilst I'm, we're talking about being in close proximity to your pet dog is causing this issue, make no mistake, things like COVID, it's probably the tip of the iceberg if we continue to deplete rainforests and continue to encroach further and further, we're going to unleash a whole Pandora's box of nastiness upon ourselves. Yeah, this is quite true. Yeah. Right, well, that's slightly depressing, but also very, very interesting news as well. It's very exciting, though, Gareth. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all speak with that because none of us are dog owners, but uh, although I I quite happily have a dog if I had the time or space, I think. But uh, for now, insects will do. (laughs) But we'll go on from from our somewhat doom and gloom of new viruses that are coming to get us to our creature feature for this week, uh, which Drew is going to talk about a very, very iconic species of tree. I'm nuts about this tree. Uh, actually, uh, acorn. Acorn's about it, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Acorn is a nut. Um... <laughs> oh! <laughs> uh, no, you're going to get fired, Gareth. I didn't dispute that it was a nut. I just, just didn't like it. <laughs> it's the creature feature. Well, now we're into this week's creature feature, which uh, we get the the fun of actually having a second plant species, which I really enjoy oh. that we're doing a, another plant species. This one is probably a little bit more well known to most people than Rafflesia was, but bit, yeah. you know that's uh, that's neither here nor there. Unfortunately, though, it would appear that a uh, we we are a man down at the moment. Aaron's internet connection has dropped out, so we're missing him for the moment. So whilst he tries to find his internet again and try and get back to us, we are going to uh, plough on with Drew's creature feature, which is all about the oak tree. Take it away, Drew. Yes, Aaron's rural internet. <laughs> Can we confirm that it's not taken down by an oak tree? That's well, we, can't, we cannot confirm that. I mean, in theory, if it was, it might have taken mine down as well, but... This is true. Uh, might only be a little one. So yes, welcome to our second ever plant creature feature, as Gareth said. And yes, uh, it's on oak trees, which is probably the most vanilla, the most basic plant or tree I could pick for a creature feature, which is ironic as vanilla is a plant as well. <laughs> but oak trees are so well known and popular to us, partly because there are over 500 different species of oak and they are distributed across almost all of the Northern Hemisphere. Europe, Asia, North Africa, and the Americas. Um, And also because they are a massive part of our history and mythology, particularly to Europeans, but not exclusively. Uh, They were important to the ancient Celts. Uh, The Druids of of their culture regarded them as sacred and sent from heaven. Even the word Druid, which derives from the Proto-Celtic 
Druwitz literally means oak knower. Oh. Um, the oak is regarded as the sacred uh, tree of Zeus. I'm disappointed that Aaron's not here actually for uh, for this bit because oh, yeah, because we're going to go away purely as well. Yeah, and yeah, that would be the same for the Roman version of Zeus, Jupiter as well, also sacred to him too. Uh, they're also associated with Thor, as you say, with Norse mythology, possibly as they're more likely to be struck by lightning than other trees. And this is due to the fact that they are usually the biggest tree around, but also because they are, have a higher moisture content than most other trees. So they, they attract that lightning. Hmm. Uh, in Slavic mythology, uh, gods lived in oak trees, and the oak represented the world. So the branches and the trunk represented the heavens and the living world, and the roots represented the underworld. This is similar to Yggdrasil of Norse mythology, but Yggdrasil, I think, is an ash tree, if I remember correctly, and not an oak. Oh, I see, I've got that wrong. I thought it was an oak tree. Uh, well, that version of that world tree myth in Slavic mythology is an oak, but I think it's ash in, in, uh, in Norse, but I could be wrong. And finally, just to bring it away from Europeans, oak trees are also sacred to uh, many Native American cultures as well. So to us and our forebears, they symbolize majesty, strength, endurance, commitment, wisdom, and protection. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, they provide wood for fuel, acorns for livestock, bark for tanning leather, and timber for construction. So that's how historically significant oak trees are to us. And I hope it's clear, or a bit clearer now, as to why I picked them for this creature feature, because they're so important. Uh, but I also picked them because in the modern day, we seem to be losing our connection to the natural world around us. And instead of seeing oak trees or any tree as harbingers and givers of life, we instead see them as obstacles that need to be cut down so that we can build a road or a railway or a 5G mast. And <laughs> 5G waves are so strong that they can cause biological damage and disease, obviously, including coronavirus. And uh, that's a fact. So you sheep all need to wake up. <laughs> uh, is it worth saying that's obvious sarcasm? Uh, w worth probably pointing out that's obvious sarcasm. Just in Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm sure this all goes without saying, but my article last week about HS2 really encouraged me to do this creature feature as well, because that was about a, an oak tree being being cut down. So I've talked about how significant they are to us and our ancestors, but how important are they to the natural world? Well, very. I guess you want more than that. Yeah, probably, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on to your butts, because uh, here comes some sweet numbers. Uh, so in the UK... Oak trees support 2,300 different species, 326 species depend on oaks for survival, and 229 species are rarely found on trees other than the oak. So in summary, no other tree species in the UK, and there are two different oak species in the UK, supports a greater diversity of life. So I tried to find a relevant comparison to oaks in mainland Europe and those in Asia and North America, but pretty much all the articles I could find were British. However, I can imagine it's a similar story elsewhere where oaks are found, uh, reinforced by the fact that there are more oak species in continental Europe than there are in the UK, and there are significantly more oak species in the US and Mexico than there are here. Um, so they may be supporting even more life in those respective areas. Also, just a quick note too, those figures I gave don't include bacteria or microorganisms. So uh, the numbers are probably quite insane uh, as to how many species oaks support. So what species does oak support? Again, hold on to your butts because this is going to be a massive data dump. And because of the large numbers I gave, I'm going to have to divide this up into different parts of the oak for simplicity's sake, uh, but also use this as an opportunity to talk about the oaks themselves. Again, 
there are over 500 different species. So this information will vary, but I'm using the English uh, or European or uh, pedunculate oak, which is uh, Quercus robar. That's a scientific name. And the sessile oak, which is Quercus petraea, as my examples, because that's the information I have easily available to me. So those are the two native species of oak to the UK. So here goes. Uh, we're going to start with the flowers of oak. So male and female flowers grow on the same tree. Male flowers grow in long dangly clusters known as catkins and appear between April and May when they release pollen into the air. Female flowers look like tiny red flower buds between the leaves and the branches. The flowers are eaten by squirrels and many insects, including the caterpillars of the purple hair streak butterfly and the dark crimson underwing moth, both of which exclusively feed on oak. Uh, that word is going to come up quite often, by the way. Uh, the pollen is a popular food source for bees, of course. Uh, the oak mining bee, like the aforementioned butterflies, feeds almost exclusively on oak pollen. So next part of the oak we'll go to are the acorns. After they've been pollinated, female flowers develop into acorns. They start off green and can usually see, be seen from August before maturing to brown and falling in autumn. Mammals are one of the main consumers of acorns, uh, favoured by badgers, deer, wild boar, squirrels and wood mice. Uh, they're also enjoyed by birds like woodpeckers, rooks and nuthatch. And uh, Gareth, can you guess as to which bird is probably the biggest avian acorn enthusiast? It's not one that I've mentioned. Ooh. Mm. A jay? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, jays. Jays would be the top of my list, I thought. Yeah, my favourite bird, which incidentally will probably come up again later in this podcast uh, from one of our questions. Uh, but yeah, jays bury any acorns they can't eat at that particular time. Uh, so they store them for later and they bury up to 3,000 a month. Wow. Um, they tend to remember where most of them are, which I find quite a feat in itself, but obviously they're going to forget some. Mm. Um, and only they do forget, have a chance to grow into new oak trees. And in fact, there was a study quite recently that suggested that half of all British oak trees were planted by jays, which is pretty incredible. Mm. So that's the acorns. Next, we'll go on to oak leaves. Uh, they first appear in April or May. Uh, they begin to change to their autumn colours as early as August. So they're not really green for that long in some oak trees and begin, or some individuals, and begin falling from the tree when autumn sets in. So leaving the tree bare by December. New leaf growth attracts aphids, which produce honeydew, which is a sugary substance that wood ants like to eat. Uh, the ants actually farm the aphids for their sweet, sweet aphid milk as well. Um, so you can see that activity on oak trees. Um, and again, caterpillars of many species also feed on oak leaves, uh, some of them exclusively, there's that word again, like the purple hair streak butterfly I mentioned before, um, as well as the oak loot string, great oak beauty, and the Merville de Jure moth. I don't know if I'm pronounced that right, because I can't speak much. No, I think that's that one. You've also got the um, oak uh, hawk moth as well. Yep. The caterpillars yep. off them as well. I will just quickly say I didn't write down literally everything. Every single species of oak. insects for that. <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, there's 3,200 different species that oak supports. So I didn't write them all down. Don't worry. Uh, but yeah, feel free to jump in with some that I haven't mentioned, though. Uh, all these invertebrates attract animals from further up the food chain, of course, uh, like spiders and a range of birds, in including the tree pipit, red star, wood warblers, and more familiar birds like blue tits and great tits. Uh, on blue tits specifically, they feed their young on winter moth caterpillars. Winter moths lay their eggs 
here comes that word, exclusively on oak trees. Uh, the hatching of the caterpillars are timed with the bud burst of fresh oak leaves. So the buds need to be out in time for the caterpillars so they have something to eat when they hatch. Um, the blue tit chicks hatch to coincide with an abundance of fat caterpillars, so adult birds have food to feed their chicks. And studies have also suggested that blue tits can pick up on the pheromones given off by an oak tree when it's being eaten by caterpillars. So there's likely some cross-species communication there as well. Um, and blue tits this year uh, in the UK have done particularly badly because uh, there was a we had a very wet May, and it meant that the everything was out of sync and they laid their eggs too early, which meant they didn't have enough caterpillars to feed their uh, to feed their chicks. So everything's in sync. So that's the that's the leaves. Um, we'll go move on next to oak bark. So oak bark is grey brown in colour and smooth when the tree is young. And as it grows or as it matures, it thickens to become textured and rough with creases and grooves. Um, eventually, bits of bark will loosen and crevices and holes will form. And these crevices and holes are ideal for bat roosts. They're also great nesting spots for birds like pied flycatchers, marsh tits and tree creepers. Uh, and of course, a plethora of invertebrates live in the bark too, uh, from beetles, butterflies, moths and ants. Some, for, uh, some of which, again, here's that word, exclusively, <laughs> live and feed on oak trees. Um, one of them, Britain's largest ground beetle, the blue ground beetle, lives, again, exclusively in damp oak woodland. And it was thought to be extinct in the UK, but it was rediscovered relatively recently. Uh, that extinction scare will be a drop in the ocean compared to the devastation that follows the destruction of our oak trees. But the gregariousness of oak bark doesn't end there. Oak supports 108 different types of fungi. 57 of them, here we go, depend exclusively on oak. You also have liverworts and mosses on the bark, and oak hosts 716 types of lichen in different shapes, colours and sizes, which offer nesting material, food and shelter. 12 lichens, say it with me, Gareth, depend Don't. on oak exclusively, or don't. <laughs> I, I like lichens. In fact, today I was looking at some slime moulds. That's even more bizarre than Oh, beautiful. <laughs> Very nice. So we're getting through these. Uh, so next, we'll go on to the roots, and this is quite a short one. Um, so oak roots are quite shallow, and they extend well beyond the tree's crown. And they rely on a complex network of fungi to gather more nutrients beyond their physical range. Uh, these fungi are known as mycorrhizal fungi. I've mentioned them, I think, once before when I was talking about bison. Um, they have a, a symbiotic relationship with the tree that benefits both parties. So that's, that's roots, very, very short. Um, and finally... At the end of the tree's life, there's dead wood. So when a tree dies, naturally, what remains also provides for wildlife. Uh, when trees grow old or older, the trunk thickens and the innermost heartwood decays and becomes exposed. And sometimes uh, like deer may start to rub out the outer layer as well, or wild boar or something exposing it um, too. So dead and decaying trees are a vital part of a wood's biodiversity and they provide habitat and nourishment to a dizzying array of species. All three of the UK's native woodpeckers, great spotted, lesser spotted and green, uh, nest in oak and often use the dead wood as it's softer and easier to excavate. Bats or, uh, also roost in cavities uh, created by the decaying process, as do squirrels and many bird species, including little owls and tawny owls. The progressing decay is a haven for lots of beetle species as well, some of which, say it with me, Gareth, exclusively <laughs> feed on and breed in dead oak like the cardinal and the oak click beetles. Again, when we're talking decaying organic matter, 
fungi was all over it as well. Um, some and set with me again, exclusively. exclusively. <laughs> and uh, there we are. I mean, it's quite a comprehensive reason as to how important the oak is, but we are sort of just scratching at the surface with that list, really, to be honest, because there's, there's so, so, so much. There's one um, I wouldn't mind adding. Um, go for it. Yeah, it is almost an exclusive one. I don't know whether they do other species as well, but mm. the oak gall wasp, which oh, is I a, didn't have that. Yeah, which is a fantastic species that parasitizes the acorn when mm-hmm. it's uh, you know with its young. Basically, the, the the female has a long ovipositor, which has uh, a sharpened edge that allows her to actually saw into the um, the acorn deposit an egg but in the process of laying the egg it actually changes the genetic structure of the um the acorn to what's called a gall it means that the the outside of it hardens and becomes like this ball Mm. shape that keeps the young nice and safe inside this thing that's basically no longer an acorn it is a chamber perfectly uh for the uh, the wasp to use so that they they rely on acorns i don't know whether Oak gall wasps use um, other trees as well, but they're uh, they're certainly one that like an oak. Yeah, may, yeah, as you say, may not be exclusive, but certainly oak, I imagine, very very important to them. But yeah, I mean, we have to remember that when we cut down an oak tree, we're not just cutting down a tree. We are destroying a home, a food source, a breeding ground, an aphid milking parlor, uh, a complex ecosystem, and we're also destroying history. And I do hope that those people who were up in arms about the statue in Bristol of the slaver that was pulled down last year were also outspoken about each and every oak tree that was ripped down. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure they were. Uh, somehow I doubt it. So it seems to me as the years go by, our disconnection from nature and our roots become more apparent. Um, and the consequences of this are pretty dire. Our ancestors didn't have close to the wealth of information and knowledge we do now. Although I'm sure they knew things that we that have since been lost to time, but yet they knew how remarkable these trees were and rightly revered them. And we should learn from their example on trees that is. But obviously, let's keep them moving away from the slavery and the ritual sacrifice and stuff. Yeah, probably that. <laughs> the UK has less woodland than any other European country, but we have more ancient oak woodland than all of the other European countries combined. Hmm. And bugger me, let's look after it because it's vital. So I will end this creature feature on this. Oak trees can live for over a thousand years. There are oak trees alive today that would have been around when Henry VIII was killing women. Uh, Even as a sapling, (laughs) they provide food and homes for wildlife. As they grow in age, they become more and more valuable. And once an oak reaches 400 years old, it's considered ancient. So to you out there who has cut down an oak to make way for a redundant train line, I say this. In comparison to this great wooden god, parent of a hundred ecosystems, what the fuck have you ever done with your life? Well, that's quite true, and I yeah. can certain, I, I would uh, I would put money on it that if you planted a, an oak sapling next to HS two now, mm. even or even when when HS two is complete, I can guarantee that in four hundred years time that tree is more likely to be standing there, you know, uh, yes, in in good use and providing services as opposed to a redundant train line. So That's a uh, very good point. That's a very, very yeah. good point, yes. And when they say, obviously, that, you know, oh, when we cut these trees down, we'll, we'll plant more, we'll plant saplings. Most of the species that rely on oak rely on older oak. 
Uh, mm. Saplings will, of course, attract some species, but the the wealth of the the species they they will provide for is when they're older. So it is never ever like for like. So don't don't ever believe the guff that like, some companies will give you that you know. Oh, we're planting all these trees to make way for the ones that we cut down. It is not. It's not comparable. No. no. It's not. It's not like for like. It's one of those. They're, they're one of those trees that they're just. They're not just impressive when they're large, but mm. they're also well. They're impressive because of the weight of biodiversity that's on them. At the yep. same time, they also get weird as well, and I love that too. That weird as they get thing. older, they just they just go weird. Yeah, they just go. Well, no, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> hey, look, I'm an old tree. I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> I'm going to spread. I'm going to spread this way. Some of the the weirdest sort of shaped ones are on Dartmoor in some of the um, mm. the sort of little valleys and, and bits where, well, farmers and, and sheep grazers couldn't get to and didn't want to bother doing anything to land. All those little valleys and crevices in, in amongst rock canyon bits and, and, and things like that are just untouched. So some of those are really awkwardly shaped and covered in moss and everything and are absolutely bizarre looking. They look, you know, they look prehistoric in, in yeah. how they look and, and sort of otherworldly. Um, I suppose that the closest thing would be sort of Middle Earth, you know, sort of Lord of the Rings sort of look to them. Very, very much. Yeah, very fangorn. Yeah, very much. Mm. I was going to say one other, one other thing on, on oaks. When it comes to uh, the fact that they are such an important tree, I think it should be a thing that we plant as many of them as possible, even though it will take centuries for them to be useful. They're not a hard thing to... Um, to, to basically get as a as a young plant they're very very easy to get my mm-hmm. parents-in-law have got an oak in their front garden and an oak in their back garden and you only have to walk underneath it to find a carpet of baby oak trees that are just yep. popping up because of every year's um uh every year's you know drop of acorns and things so uh, there's so many that they can produce one tree can produce that is enough to basically fill an entire area over, you know, a hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, very yeah. cool. Very cool creature. If not a creature, but very cool creature feature drew on uh, a very, very important, not just tree uh, ecosystem. Well, hopefully I've done them justice, but I don't know, somehow in, in all my life of, uh, you know, working conservation and hopefully we'll continue to work in conservation. I don't think I will. I, I could ever touch the uh, impact of one single locust on. Yeah, that's true. In fact, one one thing that someone told me once when it came to trees and gardening and, and planting a tree, so planting an oak sapling or a, an acorn, is knowing that you will never see the end result of that. No. But knowing no. that you are making the difference of planting that. So I'd encourage yeah. everyone to uh, plant an oak tree or plant a tree, you know, knowing that you will never see it at its full potential, but 200 years down the line, your ancestors might see it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, very cool. Right, well, we'll move on from our creature feature this week uh, into our extended email section where we've got some really, really good questions that we're going to delve into uh, and hopefully answer as many of them as possible and have a good rummage around in the mailbag. So uh, let's get into them. Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, so we're going to be uh, elbow deep now in our uh, mailbag. <laughs> this week. We've got we've got a bunch of questions, um, some really good ones, uh, in fact. 
from uh from oh, one way to start. Yeah. Yeah. So Drew, you've got the uh, the list of questions there and we've got some fairly good answers. Some of them are quite long, which is the reason we've put them all together like this. So Drew, you've got the uh, the first question there if you want to read it out for us. Yeah. So first question is from Dan Loisietti and we we do know it's pronounced that way now as he <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Thank you very much Dan. Only taken 150 episodes. <laughs> So Dan asked, are dung beetles only found in Africa? And what does that role elsewhere? Right. Well, I think I, I'm the one who's dug into this one because... We basically just let Gareth do this one, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I actually wrote down an answer. Oh. It, it says, they pick up shit, lickety-split. <laughs> there we go. I hope that's all right, Dan. Literally yeah, all not? I know about dung beetles there. Right. Okay, well, prepare to be amazed. Okay. It's a, it's a very short question, but with a very, very long answer. So without knowing exactly where, where Dan lives, I can tell you that there are dung beetles in his country, unless he lives in the Arctic Circle or in Antarctica. So they basically exist all over the planet on every continent. Uh, and there are three main families. Geotropididae. Uh, I'm always rubbish at this one. Scarabineae. Scarabineae. And a... A phone in area. Now they're all in the super family Scarabinia Dia. I am rubbish at pronouncing that. Basically, scarab beetles. So, what most Garish people think about. The week. Oh, yeah, I've butchered these, you know. Um, oh, we should also probably just mention quickly that Aaron's back. Yes, Aaron's from, back. From, 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 from not being. I'm just reappearing. I have internet again. It's good to have you back. You missed out on uh, oak trees, but we'll get you to listen back to that later. That's your punishment. Listen back about <laughs> oak trees. <laughs> anyway, so they're all in the, in the scarab beetle family. Now, what most people think of as dung beetles is that sort of very typical little beetle, quite round in shape, rolling a ball of dung. Well, there are three types of dung beetle in the way that they do things. So apart from those three different families... There are three sort of common names that they're given based on the way that they move poo. As we've established earlier in this, I really like looking at coprolites and, and uh, animal poo. You can learn a lot from dung. Um, and these guys are the experts of dung when it comes to um, what they do. So there are rollers. They're the ones that roll up a ball of, uh, of poo. That's usually the ones that live in places like Africa. So they, they've evolved to basically take on poo from things like elephants, rhinos, all that megafauna. And what they'll do is they'll roll that ball of dung into a, uh, a burrow where they'll either lay an egg onto it or they'll use it in sort of their courtship ritual between the male and the female or they'll eat the dung as well. So there are also the tunnelers, which will generally find poo on the ground and they will bury down into the ground, uh, sometimes over uh, one and a half meters. Uh, and that helps to aerate the soil. Uh, it helps to drain the soil. It also helps to spread nutrients deeper into the soil as well. And it also helps to clear, obviously, waste off the uh, the surface of the uh, the soil as well. And then the dwellers, which you could probably guess, they dwell <laughs> inside <laughs> of the poo or just underneath it. These guys also help to break it down, but generally inside of the uh, the sort of poo itself. Now, as for other things doing their... That's job, very real estate. Well, yeah, it's... Uh, it's the... Uh... The latter type, the dwellers, the yep. the ones you find in Westminster. <laughs> I I will not have that slur said about dung beetles. Dung beetles are <laughs> useful creatures and do an incredibly important job. Those dwellers are totally different. 
so um, essentially, they're incredibly important at what they do. So the dung rolling beetles themselves, they only really exist in Africa. There aren't many other animals that do the exact same job as dung beetles. There are animals that do very similar things by either digging into the poo and using some of it, laying eggs on it or eating it, but nowhere near as specialized into what they do as dung beetles are. There are lots of other different creatures that will do similar things, but yeah, dung beetles are by far the most important. They're also really important for good reason outside of Africa as well, mostly because outside of Africa, in places like America, Europe, uh, as well as Australia, we have basically changed the environment uh, in these places to allow cattle, sheep to live in vast open herds, very similar to what used to be there, but nowhere near as, as, as like greater herds. Unfortunately, we pump our cattle, our sheep, our herd animals full of wormers. Mm. Now, these can be bad. We've, I think we've touched on this with uh, vultures. They can be bad for large animals because they can do a lot of damage to their uh, reproductive uh, ability. And it's the same can actually be said for dung beetles as well. So ivermectin, which is a very, very common wormer, actually kills the grubs of dung beetles. And that means that they just disappear from these areas. And there are parts of the UK, parts of Europe, America, you name it, where cattle and that are basically just drugged, you know, in this sort of way. And you won't find dung beetles in that area because the, they can't survive on that dung because it is it's poisonous to them to an extent. There are very much new methods that people are trying to get to, which are actually old methods of keeping cattle and sheep and herd animals in smaller groups, not as in massive amounts. So you don't have to worm them as much. And you can get away with trying to do it with with different wormers as well, which are friendlier to the dung beetles, which in turn help the cattle and the sheep because they clear away all the poo. If we if we didn't have dung beetles over the planet, we would be swimming in poo. There'd be so much of it. They can move up to 250 times their own weight in poo in one night. And if you think of that as a beetle that's, well, no, no bigger than about 10 centimetres, that's an incredibly important animal doing an incredibly oh. important job. We would be literally <laughs> drowning in shit if we didn't have these guys doing that. Um, for anyone listening in the UK, there are approximately 60 species and our ones are basically dwellers and tunnelers. The minotaur beetle, um, which I think you would be interested in, Aaron, I think you've probably seen a minotaur beetle, is a tunneler and can go over a metre down into the uh, the ground taking that poo with it and like i say this helps to reduce flies aerate the soil clear the dung and just drainage and makes the soil better they're really really important animals as you can tell i quite like dung beetles so oh. <laughs> anyway there's my answer fantastic very good very good cool. aaron just quickly how do you pronounce minotaur or minotaur minotaur oh. yeah same yeah Sorry, the, the, Ameri- was, the was... americans the americans pronounce it minotaur Oh, well, oh. I, de- I definitely go with the tour because it's tour as in Taurus. It's good to know that that's what you've taken away from me talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's what I took <laughs> from that. <laughs> me mispronouncing a mythological creature. <laughs> well, no, you're just pronouncing it the way that you do. Yeah, so I, I was just, I was just curious as to which side of the fence Aaron was on. Well, anyway, let's move anyway. on to the question. Um, Drew, I think you've got this one. It's about palm oil. Yep. So this question was from that indie lady. Again, that spelt the Q. So they asked, we know how bad palm oil is, but is there any other common household products to avoid? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are. Many things. Uh, Aaron, do you want to pitch in first with your 
Yeah, okay, I would because part of my answer is uh, like quite negative, really. So uh, it's probably better yeah. that you follow up because you actually come up with <laughs> alternatives. So the first thing I want to mention about palm oil is actually that it gets a hugely bad reputation and for very good reason, because it's destroying, well, every habitat that uh, you find in, but uh, essentially the rainforests. Um, I have seen it with my own eyes, uh, palm oil plantations in Malaysia, uh, where vast swaths stretching miles, as far as the eye can see, really, across where what used to be basically the oldest rainforest in the world so and it really is quite heartbreaking and you see how they're going about it and it's often like there's palm oil plantations and there's gold mines and stuff and basically all you can see up until where the trees are growing is brown turned over dirt essentially and kind of smoldering tree stumps and when you think of malaysia their ecosystems you're not just like seeing death in front of you you're actually seeing extinction in front of you because each of these trees will have a, a species that is endemic to that specific tree um and so they're gone all the animals that rely on that thing are then gone as well so it's very sad it actually uh, seeing that affected me for a long time i had uh, quite a few nightmares for months afterwards uh, anyway I just want to point out, though, as horrific as palm oil is and palm oil practices are, I am aware that palm oil actually has a better yield than most other oils. And what I mean by that is if you imagine a meter by meter square and you have several meter by meter squares around you and you plant different oil producing plants in each one and measure it, the one with the palm oil plantation on it will produce more oil for you. So it's kind of more efficient for space. Which is important to note, because maybe yeah. they're not best placed in the rainforest, of course, but maybe there's another way of going about it. But let me just, we're going to talk in, um, just briefly, talking litres of oil per hectare. So can you guys name me an oil, just randomly? Drew, you name rape me seed. an oil. Rapeseed. Rape rape let me find rapeseed on my, so rapeseed. For, for a hectare, a hectare of rapeseed will get you... 1,190 litres, okay? Yep. Palm oil, 5,950 litres. I'll do one as well because everyone wants hemp, don't they? Every, everybody wants hemp, but a lot of the people that want hemp have a kind of, they're kind of confusing their want for weed uh, with, <laughs> with their need for hemp. So hemp, this amazing thing that will end all of our problems across every single known issue to man, Hemp will give you 363 litres of oil per hectare. And just a reminder, palm oil will get you 5,950. Uh, Gareth, can you name me an oil? Oh, uh, corn, corn oil, whatever it yeah. is. Corn oil, yeah, maize oil. So that's that's actually one of the lowest on the list, if not the lowest. Yeah. 170 litres of oil per hectare. Uh, just to remind you, drive that figure home for you. Palm oil, 5,950. There's one other one that I'd like to point out, because, again, it's one of these health bad ones. Everybody sings the praises of coconut oil. That one's 2,689. So it's a bigger number than the others that we've listed together, but still, it's not really a fraction on palm oil. There are two sources of oil that are larger. The first is, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but Copifera langsdorfi. Uh, it's also known as the diesel tree. So that produces 12,000 litres per hectare. And then algae, open pond algae, that will uh, produce 95,000 
I didn't know you could get oil from algae. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you can. Um, no, so, yeah. It is something that you every now and then you see pop up in the uh, in the circles that we kind of haunt. But um, yeah, there doesn't seem to be huge amounts of praise sung for it. And I need to look into why, because that is incredible amount. But yeah, the honest answer is that at 5,950 litres per hectare, oil palm is by far the, the best producing one. So what we need to think about is where we put it rather than boycotting it altogether. Anyway, the actual question was about other bad household items. So uh, as a dad, I can tell you that we go through a lot of nappies. Um, we were doing really well with reusable nappies. These are nappies that they are um, they're made of fabric and they have inserts that are kind of thick and padded and absorbent. Your kid poos and wheezes in them, you take them off just like you do with a normal nappy. And we, what we do is we chuck it in a bucket with hot water and, and a cleaning product, let it soak, and then put it in the washing machine to finish it off. And again, to be honest with you, that's not perfect because some of the uh, detergents and the washing products that we have are not the best for the environment either. But reusable nappies are certainly better than the uh, disposable ones. So, yeah, uh, there is one thing that I did want to mention as well. This is a bit of a rant, but it's one of the major things that people overlook whilst they're screaming about plastics in the sea and palm oil in the jungle. And it's one of their own habits. In fact, 14.1% of Brits do this habit. I've ranted about it on a previous episode. It's estimated that there are 1 billion people that do this globally, and that is, of course, smoking. Tobacco plantations rip down habitat to to actually be grown. Uh, They employ what essentially amounts to slave labour, exploiting the poorest of poor people in poor regions to produce the the plant. And it kills over 8 million people per year. So just that is uh, is a bad enough impact. 7 million of these people, uh, of these deaths, are actually attributable to smoking. 1.2 million of the 8 million are uh, attributable to secondhand smoke. And then those fag butts that you drop on the floor or in the ashtray or in the bin, they inevitably end up being blown about, blown off of landfill or wherever they are and choking an animal that picks it up and puts it in its mouth. Things like hedgehogs have been known to have that problem. Or they land in the sea where it breaks apart, spilling its microplastics throughout the great blue habitat. It really is a much bigger problem than people want to realise and it ticks me off. Most smoking deaths are cancerous. My dad died of cancer, but he wasn't a smoker. So when I see people smoking, I can't help but take it personally. I do feel that you're choosing to do something that will actively and very likely attract the very disease that my dad didn't choose to have. And that irks me on a very personal level. Uh, But yeah, that's my rant about household items that are as bad as or worse than uh, palm oil. Yeah, I mean... I don't know how to how to follow that really, but I did <laughs> I did have I did have a couple of sort of just alternatives. So I, I when this question was asked, um, I had a look at just around my place to see if there's anything that I could be doing better. There's plenty, or things that my partner and I already do. Ultimately, I know we're at a time where big change needs to happen, and it needs to happen fast. And this needs to come from probably large corporations and governments to make the biggest change. But it doesn't mean that we can't help by. Making little changes as well, because they're not obsolete. So you can, uh, instead of using cling film and stuff to wrap stuff up, uh, you can use beeswax wraps or cloth. They're perfect. You can reuse those. Or you can use containers with lids. Um, And on that, actually, I found quite a helpful tip with uh, about takeaways that I think I'm probably going to use, which is when you do get a takeaway, keep the plastic containers that you get. And the next time you go to that takeout, take them back and ask them to put their stuff back into those containers in theory if anything they might thank you for doing that i, I know they've never thought of doing that before 
yeah I, I know they probably cost pittance that they, they might thank you for doing that for bringing that stuff back obviously make sure it's cleaned don't take yeah. it back dirty mcdonald's <laughs> might not thank you for taking back the cardboard one well no. actually, <laughs> that, i'm talking plastic on take subject, yeah. on that subject uh mm. when rogue one was released in the cinema and they were doing these refillable yes. cups with, with uh with a we bought metal straws and I did ask in the McDonald's, if I brought my cup along with my own metal straw, would you fill the milkshake up from there? And they were well game. They were very enthusiastic for it. That's really good. So yeah. that might be do that. a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Do that. Um, also, refillable mm-hmm. milk, I think, is a, is a thing in Germany. Awesome. Yeah. To be honest, the sad thing is, it's one of these things that I bet if we asked our parents... And I, mm. I know for a glass bottles are very much a thing that people used to, you know, you'd, you'd buy. So this is something that they had in Australia. You haven't mentioned that in this episode, <laughs> yeah, no, actually. I, I so here we, get it in, we yeah. nearly got to the end. Yeah. So the, the they used to do at certain supermarkets and also at some of the the garages, they'd do essentially a crate. You buy the crate and you take it back after having whatever drinks you bought in the crate. You know, you bring the bottles back. And then, you know, you'd, you'd pay the amount that the, uh, the bottles are worth and you'd have it refilled. But, you know, it's, oh. it makes far more sense to have glass bottles than plastic ones. Uh, yes. I hate the fact that glass is, is just some, somehow seems like a, a niche thing in some places. But like I say, I bet if we asked our parents, it was a thing that was done 30, 40 years ago. And it's just because plastic is so much cheaper and so much yep. easier that those ways have just been thrown to the wayside and are now seen as some sort of niche new idea when in fact it's just going back to what we used to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do have just a, a sort of a couple of honourable mentions for sort of reusable things. You can, one, cotton buds, I mean, not so much reusable, just stop using them. There's quite a famous image of a seahorse holding on to a pink one. We don't need them. We should be sticking stuff in our ears anyway. Um, you can get reusable compostable sponges instead of the usual plasticky ones that you get for washing up your dishes. And yeah, try not to get plastic cups, bags or straws, basically anything that's disposable. Pens, razors, anything that has a non-disposable alternative. And the last one, well, we don't use these, the three of us. And it's oh. uh, it's it's tampons. Oh, right. <laughs> you can, again, get reusable pads that you wash yourself but there's loads of alternatives out there. You can get something that's reusable instead of disposable, and if you can do that, do that. That's why I agreed to you should go second, because it ends on a much cheerier note. (laughs) What, tampons? Tampons. Well, no, just like alternatives are happier than a massive rant about bad habits. No, I think it's it's fair enough. Anyway, we'll move on from palm oil to our next question, which is about migrations. Uh, yep, so that was from the same person, so that indie lady, and they asked, do any mammals migrate in or to UK? Mm. Essentially, no, um, in terms of no terrestrially-based land mammals migrate over here. The guys have a bit more information in a bit, but we've also built over every corner of this island, so that blocks any migration of our natives through the habitats. We've wiped out their predators to the largest part, Uh, So they don't follow any of these migrations that can't happen. And this is an issue I take with the bloodlust of of my countrymen, really. You you don't get it. Once it's gone, it's gone. There'll be no deer, foxes or badgers swimming across the channel like wolves in Europe, traversing the mountainous valleys to reclaim lost land. On an island, what you kill is gone for good. Besides, look at how we treat humans migrating to the UK. Do you really think if a member of a different species migrated it wouldn't be met with disdain. If we can't care for our own kind, then I think what hope do we have of caring for other species? 
That's quite true. Well, it's, it's very poignant. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I feel it's almost disingenuous to follow that up with uh, <laughs> with, with some stuff, but uh, I, I will. Um, but yeah, like as, as Aaron said, no terrestrial mammals do. Well, apart from humans, and humans can technically swim the channel, so it's not beyond the possibility that other animals could. But it's obviously incredibly, incredibly unlikely. Because why would they? There are circumstances of, of things like moose in Canada and yep. uh, elk doing very long swims, but I don't think there's been any recorded turning up in the UK. No, well, they're, they're sort of pushed to the point where they sort of feel they have to, don't they? Mm. But nothing can just walk here, really, from the continent, of course. Um, animals have to fly or swim. So we are left with animals that swim effectively. So that's whales and dolphins, and they do migrate here. So a uh, quick example is humpbacks. Uh, they like to feed in the Arctic, and when they breed, they migrate down to the tropics, and they sometimes use the UK as a important service station, if you will. Orcas also come down from the Arctic too, and sometimes all the way down to Cornwall. And then onto mammals that fly. So that's bats, obviously. Uh, so during winter, most bats that are native here hibernate here, but some pipistrels do migrate in autumn from the north of uh, the country down to the south, um, and some even cross the channel to reach southern Europe. I think if we're going to answer this question in full, do mammals migrate to the UK? Basically, whales, dolphins, and occasionally bats. The little known fact about the orcas that come down to Cornwall, they don't do their scones wrong. Oh, God. No. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway. Which goes on top on the orca? Is it the black or the white? <laughs> <laughs> Which way do you white? spread? I'm going to say they're white underneath, so I'm going to say the black goes on top. Yeah, because the white is like the, the dairy, white is the cream. It? It's the yeah, cream. the white is the cream, yeah. yeah. When it comes to uh, large terrestrial mammals, the last time that there was large terrestrial mammals migrating into Britain was about 10,000 years ago, or before that point, because that was the last point we were joined to mainland Europe, at which point we'd have just been another jutting out bit of the continent, um, and there would have been some animals migrating this way and in fact they still find skeletons and, and fossils of these these mammals which include everything from cave lions uh, megaloceros the, the giant irish elk mammoth woolly rhino all these large animals uh, essentially across what is known as the north sea now which used to be called or is, is generally referred to as doggerland and it's the area in between mm. the east coast of britain we, we still do that in the uk though <laughs> it's a whole other thing <laughs> Uh, the east coast of England, like Norfolk. Not us, not the podcast. Uh, <laughs> where it was joined to what Sorry, was in Europe. So it's been a long time since we've had any large terrestrial mammals doing any sort of migrations like that. But at some oh. point, there would have been herds of mammoth roaming across what is now modern-day Britain. And in fact, they still quite routinely... Uh, it's fishermen that generally find tusks and bones if they're using trawlers, uh, and they just haul them up from the bottom of the sea. Anyway, wow. we'll move on to our final one of the uh, the emails, which, uh, Drew, you've got this one. It's about our, our favourites. <laughs> yes. So this is from Stephen Nature Man, or Steve Natureman. He asked, uh, what's your favourite, basically, animal? But he gave a, a few categories. We did, if you don't mind, Steve, and obviously if you do mind, do feel free to get in contact <laughs> and state your displeasure. But I did add a couple <laughs> of categories to it as well, uh, because... Inclusivity. Uh, yeah. yeah, just for inclusivity, yeah. I guess we'll go through these one by one. Yeah, yeah. First one is carnivore land mammals. So I assume basically means any sort of carnivorous land mammals, uh, but not necessarily carnivore, I would assume. Drew, do you want to go first and then Aaron? 
Okay, mine was quite easy because it's been my favourite animal since I was a child. Influenced by the Animals of Farthing Wood, which is a cartoon, uh, which was basically a cartoon version of Game of Thrones. Uh, All the characters (laughs) you like do eventually die. And it taught me about life and death at an early age, and I don't see anything wrong with that, personally. Uh, quite, the opposite, quite the opposite, if anything. Yeah, my favourite animal is a red fox. It always has been. Hmm. Aaron? Oh, my favourite one is yeah. uh, probably very obvious, actually. My favourite. Yeah. Uh, well, well, I wonder what this could be. It's, uh, it's a polecat. Is it the what? Okay. <laughs> it's not a polecat. My favourite is tiger, specifically amateur tigers. They've just captured my imagination from the first time I ever laid eyes on one. I have very fond memories of visiting Longleach Tigers when I was a kid. And as I've grown up and worked with them, my understanding of them has developed. And to be quite frank, forget like all the scientific foundation of this podcast. I just think they're ridiculously cute, to be honest. <laughs> um, I think, like I say, Amir Tigers are my favourite of the different subspecies. If I may just use this as a, a bit of a political platform uh, for a moment, but I, I would, I would argue with that. anyone... But this will be the most controversial thing I've ever said on this podcast here. Okay, good. I would argue, till the cows come home, that Shere Khan is the misunderstood hero of Jungle Book. Because he warns everyone that they have the law of the jungle to keep the humans out and stuff, and he warns everyone about Mowgli, and sure enough, Mowgli comes back in and burns the rainforest down. Yep. So Shere Khan was right. Okay. Yep. There we go. (laughs) Shere Khan for the PM. Right. Um, well, my one, I, I've gone to be controversial because it, it actually really, I couldn't decide. I like pumas, uh, I like platypuses, I like echidnas. Now, people probably think platypus and echidna, they're not like carnivores, but technically they are eating other animals. So they're eating meat. So they're a yeah. So the one I went with uh, is the pangolin, uh, which isn't, it, it eat ant, it, it, it eat ant, it eats <laughs> ants and termite. So it is eating other things. It is a carnivore in that sense i i love pangolins because they're just such an obscure thing and i can remember seeing one for the very first time not a live one never seen a live one but a stuffed one that used to be in the little museum in the town in scotland where i used to live and it was one of the first things that and a sawfish rostrum were two of the random things they had in their museum so we're going to the the next one yeah next one was herbivore land mammal so basically it's any land mammal that eats Vegetation. Should we should we go in the same order? Should we? Yeah, yeah, let's keep the same order. I went on these with gut instinct basically because I was struggled with this one. But my gut instinct when I first thought of this is what what herbivore do I really like? Uh, it was bongos, uh, the antelope. Oh yeah, forest antelope from Africa. Uh, I loved them when I played the first two tycoon again as a kid. I I just think having seen them in life, they're again going on out of what Aaron said. It's not scientific, but they're they're beautiful. Yeah, they're amazing mm. animals. But I wanted to give an honourable mention to European bison because I didn't think too oh, much about one, them yeah. until until I saw one and he was one of the most charismatic creatures I've ever seen. So I really like them too. But yeah, my gut instinct is Bongo. Hmm. Two really good choices. Aaron? Thank you. My favourite herbivorous land mammal is the Asiatic elephant. Uh, oh, they, yeah. I think they have all the beauty and grace of their African cousins but they have replaced the shitty attitude with a noticeable bump in intelligence. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> African elephants are just so so grumpy and aggressive, but a- Asian elephants aren't like that at all. I find it very interesting that they are closer related to the mammoths than they are to the African elephants. Mm. 
and also I, I went out and I spent a little bit of time in a um, in a village in Thailand and I met some Asiatic elephants. They weren't at this uh, kind of touristy kind of like dive attraction. They were supported by a, a family of Mahuts were with this family of elephants. And uh, I made a real connection with one of the calves there and uh, it stuck with me. Um, and also a story about Asiatic elephants. Uh, there's a there's a river near where the Asiatic elephants are, and one day there's a herd of these uh, water buffalo coming up through like a stampede, and I didn't see them coming. Um, my back was turned to the river, and my back was turned to the elephant, and I heard <laughs> the roar from the Jurassic Park T-Rex. <laughs> um, bear in mind, I'm in the middle of a field or a clearing, and the forest is like right by me. All the hairs on the back of my neck that stuck up, and for a moment, captured in time, I thought I was about to be eaten by a T Rex. <laughs> and I turn around, and the elephant is just the elephant is charging towards me to get out of the way of this uh, herd of buffalo that spooked her. And the roar, the, like this, it's a really low guttural rolling roar and i've never heard anything like it in my life <laughs> apart from the t-rex because they used it they used asian elephant roar and slowed it down for the uh for the roar the, the t-rex noise so yeah it's mm. my story about uh, elephants yeah well mine's nice and simple i just like european beavers so i just yep. like the beavers <laughs> oh beavers are a good one beavers are a good one yeah, yeah, largest, good largest one. rodent in europe second largest in the world just a really cool animal. Yep. So next one was marine mammal. I wasn't too sure on this one because marine mammals aren't really my sort of forte. I don't dislike them. And I, I won't argue they're not fascinating or incredible. I just, you hate them. Just, uh, yeah, all right, sure. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to pick one, I think I just went with sort of the most aesthetically pleasing to me, I think, uh, which is humpback whales. Mm. They're quite nice. I think... Um... I went quite simple with this one, but but genuine nonetheless. Fin whale and bottlenose dolphins, and that's because they're the first marine mammal species I've ever seen in in the wild. So yeah, mine was a little bit hard to come by because there are some marine mammals that I really really like. I do really like humpback whales, blue whales as well have always fascinated me. But I went for the one that I've always wanted to. Uh, if it was the first DVD I ever bought was, I think, Life in the Freezer by David Attenborough. And it's got that bit on it where the cameraman is in the water and there's a leopard seal that comes up to him and offers him a dead penguin that it's killed. as just like, a, <laughs> oh, yeah. here you go, yeah. you want this? And ever since that moment, I've just absolutely loved leopard seals. They're just fantastic creatures. And I've got that amazing jaw full of teeth. But they're just, they look so calm and, you know, they just couldn't care what else is going on. Yeah. Next one, ironically, is birds. And yeah. definitely not the lorikeet that we can hear in the it's background. Yeah, it's definitely not the, not the lorikeet. <laughs> no, but this this was a really difficult one because I like loads of birds. But my, again, my gut instinct, I already mentioned it in this episode, uh, when talking about oak trees, is jays. Um, mm. And probably the Eurasian jay, as they're the only jays native to the UK, so the ones I'm sort of familiar with. I love corvids. Uh, but honourable mentions, hornbills, tiracos, and rollers, and vultures. Yeah, so I think uh, my favourites are the Golden Eagle and the Raven. They're both natives to the UK. But aside from all the stereotypical observations we can make as scientists and conservationists, what really struck me with these two birds is actually my interest in historic cultures and beliefs. 
Whereas these birds are both act as messengers of incredibly wise, temperamental and warmongering deities. Uh, the raven, of course, is associated with Grimmir or Woden or Odin. And the golden eagle is, uh, of course, is associated with Zeus, the chiefest and greatest of the Olympian gods, potentially of all gods. Fair enough. <laughs> well, yeah. That's well, a strong that's, statement. That's, that's got all the theists angry. Right. So <laughs> my one, um, I had a few different ones. I mean, I really like carrots. I've grown up around things like budgies and, and stuff like that and ended up breeding quite a few different parrots. And I still have a parrot, which we put up last week on our Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And as much as I love Charlie, my uh, parrot, one of my favorite birds and probably the one that came to mind for this is the emu because they're just they're so they're so they are a magnificent derp that's basically yes they are i've never met an aggressive emu yeah i think that's just a great family isn't it the ratite family they're all they're all awesome if i had the land i'd have some emus (laughs) basically just so i could walk through a field full of emus why not (laughs) they're flocking this way exactly yeah chase chase my foxes <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, we'll, we'll move on. Yeah. Reptiles. Ooh. <laughs> Next, reptiles. So it's a no, really difficult one. Again, gut instinct, monitor lizards for me. I don't mm. actually have a specific species, though. I think I lean towards the more sort of gracile looking monitors to the chunkier boys. But yeah, I think monitor lizards are my favorite reptiles. Mm. Saltwater crocodile. I don't need to say much on it because I did a creature feature on it. Yeah, oh, very cool. I've gone for another crocodilian as well. It was a toss up for me between the American and the Chinese alligator, both oh. of which I've I've worked with over the years and both of which are they're just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous things. Uh, but I chose the Chinese alligator because it's that little bit smaller and they're just yeah, they're cute as anything. Critically endangered as well. Yeah. Mm. Uh, next was oh, so next was one that we included because uh, it wasn't in there. So, sorry, Steve. Hope they that's felt okay. Left out. Steve, yeah, we felt Steve, left you out. should know um, better. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Um, here's diplomacy in action. Uh, so, the next one was <laughs> was amphibian. For me, again, not a specific species, but it's uh, encounters that I had as a as a kid, and it's what got me so interested in. I mean, all of this pretty much was pond dipping, and what I was looking for was newts. So, since I was seven years old, or so. I still struggle to identify the difference between a palmate and a smooth newt now. Obviously, as a seven-year-old, I did. So I think they were probably mostly smooth newts. But I, I mean, I, I love all, our, all the three species of newt we have here in the UK. I've never seen a great crested, but I would love to. They're very cool. Mm. Aaron, your favourite amphibian? <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of thinking because uh, you're not much you, of an amphibian person. When, if you remember, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm newly converted to the amphibian world. <laughs> What converted? Which one converted you? Yeah, it was it was the prehistoric the prehistoric history that converted me, not a specific okay. species. If I okay, I think I've got one. Um, I've just pulled this from my ass, basically. Uh, axolotls, because oh, yeah. they nice. they've kind of perfected that kind of life goal of growing up but not growing old. Yes. <laughs> well, that's quite true, I suppose. Um, yeah. To to stick with the theme of essentially salamanders newts and and uh, axolotls mine is the japanese giant salamander and it's because oh, yeah. uh, years and years ago i i was helping someone set up a small museum and he was the person who showed me how to do a lot of mold making and uh, <clears throat> making replicas of of skeletons and and bones and things like that which is always 
something I've I've loved doing, which I know you two have seen me play with latex and silicon and all those different things. Um, one of the first molds I ever got um, from anything like that was um, w- quiet you <laughs> was of a Japanese giant salamander that was um, from a museum, and uh, it was basically a life a life cast of one that had died, I think, from the Adelaide Zoo from like the nineteen sixties or something. And it was just this beautifully cast thing. Unfortunately, I have now lost that original mold and I, I don't have one anymore. But it was a life-sized Japanese giant salamander. Uh, yeah, that's quite cool. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Um, in fact, that was one of the first things that I think when you and me, Drew, went yep. to uh, London Zoo, we went to go and... Uh, yes, see went the, to see Professor Wu. Professor Wu, the Chinese giant salamander. Oh, he was beautiful. Unfortunately, Aaron missed out on that entire day of us going to London. Is <laughs> <laughs> this that trip? Is it? This, yeah, yeah, that's the trip when when we organised to go there. I think we started off at six in the morning. We rocked down towards your place, tried to get hold of you, and we went, "Oh, never mind. We'll just go anyway." And you texted us at one in the afternoon and went, "Sorry, just woken up." <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely useless. <laughs> It was anyway, a good day. Let's move on from our uh, opinions. It was yeah, a lovely day. Yeah. And on to... And... <laughs> it was a lovely day. <laughs> um, we'll move on to another one that we included as they were missing. Fish. Difficult yeah. one again, I think. But I think for me, probably the magnificent derp itself, the basking yeah. sharks. But mm. I like whale sharks too. I like pike. I love pike. Oh, uh, my partner does not like pike at all, but I really, really like pike. Swordfish and eels as well. Uh, Honourable mentions to all of them, but I think basking sharks. Um, for me, it's seahorses, and I don't have a specific oh, yeah. species because there's just a lot about the group, the family that uh, that I admire. I just they're stunning to behold and very relaxing to watch, and they've eluded me on like every dive I've ever been on. Yeah. Um, oh, you need a cotton bud, mate. Yeah, I need a cotton <laughs> bud. Yeah, that'll, that'll help. I also think the males are the absolute pinnacle of what, what men should be. They're devoted partners, they're great dads, they're able to eat as much as they wish whilst never gaining a gram of fat. Um, <laughs> and also their place in mythology, once again, like Poseidon and, and, and that, all that business. Uh, the only thing I dislike about seahorses is their ability to swim, which is absolutely shocking. And to say it's pants would be a compliment. You don't need to. It doesn't matter. There never has an animal evolved to be so useless at locomotion in its own habitat. Like even jellyfish that don't actively swim, by the way, are more effective at moving than seahorses are. Wow. True. I went with the first one that came to my mind, which is, is such a strong one. Although thinking about it now, I really do like pike. They're an amazing fish. Uh, and barramundi, Murray cod. In fact, I love all the Australian native fish. I could talk for hours about some of those species. But the one that instantly came to mind is the coelacanth. It's yeah. a, you know, it's that iconic. Everyone goes on living fossil. It's not a living fossil. It's just an incredibly good animal at doing what it does. It is a an ancient fish, but it's it's no more ancient than a crocodile or a shark. So, uh, but yeah, they're an absolutely stunning fish. Yeah, that's a good choice. Next one was bug which we're taking a sort of like basically well, yeah. all in all insects and possibly arachnids as well unless um, you want to pick on specifically hemiptera which is the actual bugs which limits yeah. it much yeah it does limit it down uh I, yeah i think i think we'll just take this as all insects and possibly arachnids so i i, I struggled with this one like with marine animals because 
as Aaron said, I hate them. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't hate, I don't hate bugs. But again, gut instincts is praying mantis. I don't know a lot about them. I just think they're funky. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. I my favourite has it's been my favourite bug in inverted commas for a long time, and it's the false widow. Mm. Uh, I I love this animal because of the unreasonable and completely unbalanced fear that everybody in Britain has over it. Every summer it's like, oh no, a false widow bit my dog and now he's lost his leg. <laughs> and and oh no, I've been bitten and my whole arm swell up. And it's like, this spider can't bite you. But I just, it, I think it, the fear... Actually, Aaron, it, it can bite you. Can it bite you? It can bite you. You can have an allergic reaction to it, but the venom of them is exceedingly minor. It's no worse than the bee sting. Oh, right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the reason why I thought they can bite me is because Gareth told me that they can't bite. (laughs) (laughs) My whole reason for liking them is because Gareth told me they can't bite, which makes me laugh. I never never did any such thing. (laughs) Yes, you did. Outside of bug world, you actually told me. No. If I did, I've... I've Your misinformation. Erroneously, yeah. Gareth was drunk that day. Yeah, I must have (laughs) Well, then I don't have a favourite bug, really. I, um, They're still very cool. I, still I, cool. Yeah, I know, but I liked it because the the unbalanced fear that it put in people. Oh, they still have that unbalanced fear, but they're no more dangerous to you than being hit on the head by a coconut. Hey, being hit on the head that, by a coconut that, hurts. That can that be quite dangerous. You. That's more dangerous than, a, than, than one of these guys. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> my favourite one, as I've already uh, waxed lyrical about, shall we say, on mm. previous creature feature is the wetter. The the Wellington tree wetter is my favourite for obvious reasons. They're just amazing looking things. Isn't it a weeter? A weeter, yeah. <laughs> I'd better, better get a weeter on my sweeter. Uh, then the last couple. So we've got plant, our favourite plant. I mean, I've just done a creature feature on it. Oak tree. Very good. I like ferns, nice. but yeah, oak tree. I, I've got two favourites. So uh, I like sunflowers because... <laughs> I like sunflowers well because they always seem to impress my partner and make her smile. Uh, and I like daffodils because they're like a plant that essentially just ensnares the very essence of spring sunshine. They're warm and welcoming and, and bright. And yeah, I like, I, like, I like daffodils. Wow. Well, I've gone for another one that is just, I, I mean, you, you two have heard me talk about this one and it will, it will be a creature feature at some point, is the Wallamai pine. Mm. I've got a fridge magnet of the the one that we have here at work because people thought it would be a joke to give me a picture on a fridge magnet of a tree that I like. Jokes on them. I like that fridge magnet. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And then the final one, ending on a natural history point, is extinct dinosaur. I think I've mentioned mine before, ever since I was a kid. Same as Alan Grant, Triceratops. Very nice. I've got four that are very close and they keep jostling for position. Traditionally, always been my favourite. Is actually the same as Drew's, but I'll, I'll go a little bit more specific. Mine is Triceratops horridus. Oh, right. um, well, the, the other three that keep kind of jostling for position there are Tyrannosaurus rex, uh, which I did a creature feature on, Ambopteryx longibrachium, which I did a creature feature on, and Deinonychus anteropus, which is one that I would like to do a creature feature on maybe one day. Else beats me to it. Uh-huh. Well, I, I, I'm also the same as both of you. I, I've loved Triceratops from uh, a young age and Deinonychus uh, with Velociraptor in tow as well. 
I mean, th- there's so many dinosaurs that I could na- name that oh. I really like. Therizinosaurus as well is another one. But the one that I went for, it's it's a British dinosaur that I absolutely love the idea of. It's Baryonyx, the heavy claw himself, our very own Spinosaurid from uh, from the UK. An absolute yeah, good, animal. very good choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's it. And that brings our, our list of uh, emails that we've uh, delved into uh, to a close. So some really good ones there, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and we've still got more to go through as well. Oh, so. yes. Well, you know, next time we'll have to go more than elbow deep. What can I say? Yes. <laughs> Whole arm. Okay. Shoulder right deep. Well, if you, if you too, uh, listeners, enjoyed uh, those emails um, and, in fact, want to send us an email, uh, this is that point of the show where I get to tell you where you can send those emails to. Uh, you, can, uh, you can get in contact with us either at our email address, which is thenathistorycovered at gmail.com. You can also get in contact with us on Twitter and on Facebook, where we have things uh, going up all the time. Our Twitter handle as well is at NHCovered. Um, that's the best place to find us. Always be putting things up on there. Um, uh-huh. But it brings me to say as well, if you enjoyed what you've heard uh, today, we've certainly had some um, some moments with some poop. We've certainly had some moments of controversy. Yeah, I wonder how many people we've offended and from various different groups this week. Uh, and yep. I've also managed to take Aaron's place of uh, mispronouncing things. So, yeah, if you've liked what you've heard, um, remember that you can leave us a like, a review on all the uh, the podcasting services that you might be listening us uh, to on. Uh, remember to tell a friend because that's always good. So it does all the sort of good stuff uh, that gets us out there. All your enemies. Uh, all your enemies. Just shout it at random people walking down the street. You know, yeah. listen fine. to us. That would be fine. Um, but like I say, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Um, so a big thank you to you guys, uh, Aaron. Big thank you to you, especially no for internet working uh, in the end. Yeah. <laughs> and a big thank you to you as well, Drew. Uh, uh, it's been emotional. It's been a pleasure. Your internet has been, well, working well. I mean, it's, it's never great, but yeah, okay. <laughs> So uh, that also brings me to say a big thank you to you guys at home for listening. And of course, we will see you uh, here again next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Lemon mutants. <laughs> <laughs>